James chapter four. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter four. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a couple of quick updates about what's going on at Coastal. Our mission team left for Honduras yesterday, so please keep them in prayer. Pray for safe travels, pray for good health, and pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward. Uh, We have prayer cards still available at the welcome desk, so I'd encourage you to please grab one of those cards and use it as a reminder to keep them in prayer over the next week while they are ministering to the people in Honduras. Wanted to remind you that our backpack drive is ongoing now through August 14th, so stop by the welcome desk, pick up a school supply list, And I'd encourage you guys, make sure you grab a backpack, get some school supplies and bring those back to church. You can drop it off in the bin over there. By August 14th, this is just a great way that we can bless our community and the schools in our community. And finally, last but not least, right after this service at noon, we have our first impressions, ushers and greeters training. So if you are currently serving as an usher or a greeter, we would love for you to attend this. And if you are interested in serving with First Impressions, I'd encourage you, please stay for this meeting. Lunch will be provided. Uh, And this is just a great ministry for you to serve in. And as we are moving to three services here in the next couple of weeks, we really, really could use some more people on our First Impressions team. So please consider staying after the service today at noon. Uh, You get a lunch out of it uh, and it'll be a great time. We'd love for you guys to be at that training. James chapter four, I've entitled the sermon this morning, Grace to the Humble. And what James is going to show us in this text is what humility looks like, and he is going to warn us of the dangers of pride. The Bible has a lot to say about pride and humility. For example, Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is destructive in our lives. And let me illustrate about what that looks like. In his book, Humilitas, John Dixon tells a story about four people on a plane. And as they're going, the engines go out and the plane starts going down. The pilot comes over the intercom and says, hey, listen, this plane's going down. There's only four of us on this plane and there's only three parachutes. So listen, I'm the pilot, my plane, my parachutes, I get one of them. The other three are like, all right, fair enough. So he goes, so now you got three people left, two parachutes. Of these three, you have a world-renowned, brilliant professor. He's a rocket scientist, just an egghead, brilliant guy. Then you have an old pastor, and then you have a, a hiker. He's a backpacker. And of these three, they get to talking, and the professor says, hey, listen, guys, I am one of the greatest minds in the country. I can't die. I'm really important. So I'm going to take one of these parachutes and I'm going to go. And the other two say, all right, fine, go ahead. So all you have left is the old pastor and the backpacker. And the old pastor says, listen, you know, I've lived a long life. I'm at peace with God. I don't fear death. You go ahead and take the last parachute and go. The backpacker says, no, actually we're fine. You see, he just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (laughs) Church, sometimes pride literally comes before the fall. Uh, But all kidding aside, this story illustrates the reality of pride in our lives and its destructiveness. I believe that the greatest single need that we have as Christians is humility. That's not hyperbole. That is the number one thing that we need before we need anything else is to humble ourselves before God. I like the reason that Andrew Murray gives for that in his famous book on humility. He said, humility is not so much a grace or a virtue along with others. It is the root of all 
because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Humility isn't just one out of many virtues that we need to cultivate as believers. It is the root of all virtue because only humility puts us in a position to understand who God is and to understand who we are. And first and foremost, what does God want from us but humility? Isaiah chapter 66, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. In other words, God's saying, I don't need you to build me a house. All the material you're gonna use, I created it. We're never gonna impress God with our work or our service for God. He doesn't need us, but what does God want from us? Verse two, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is seeking people who will humble ourselves before him, will tremble at his word and will allow him to be God and to stop trying to be our own gods. And so let me give you the main point of this text this morning. We need to humble ourselves before God. This will transform our relationships with others and our perspective on life. So let's look at the word of God together in James chapter four. Let's read verses six through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, as we consider this text this morning, we realize how far we fall short. Lord, we acknowledge in our own sinful state, Lord, how naturally pride comes to us, how naturally self-absorption comes to us, and how unnatural it is to be truly humble in your sight. So Father, would you help us? Would you send your Holy Spirit now to fill us and to help us understand this word and to help it sink down deep into our hearts and that it would transform our lives? We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we need to talk about this morning is humility before God. Humility before God. So just to recap, last week we talked about conflict and we saw how conflict in our lives comes from desires in our hearts and worldliness outside of us. We saw in very powerful terms the sinfulness in our lives. And yet in the midst of this, in verse six, James tells us, but he gives more grace. And he goes on to show us how he gives more grace. God gives grace to the humble. He quotes from Proverbs 3.34 that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we need to get some careful definitions here. What is humility? If God gives grace to the humble, then we need to understand what it means to be humble. Let me give you two quick definitions. Tim Keller calls humility the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. In a similar way, C.S. Lewis said, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. You see, what pride is fundamentally is self-absorption. It is self-obsession. 
It is the exalting of the self. It is putting myself on the throne of my life and functionally treating myself as if I am God. And so in this light, we can see that arrogance is a form of pride, but also self-loathing is a form of pride. Because whether it's positive or whether it's negative, I'm obsessed with myself. I'm connecting every conversation, every circumstance, every situation in my life and only viewing it through the lens of how does this impact me? It is a heart posture that makes everything about me. That is what pride is. Humility, by contrast, realizes that this is God's world, not mine, that the universe is telling God's story, not mine. I'm a supporting actor in my story, not the main character. God is. And so it views life through that perspective. And in this text tells us that God is in active opposition to those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And James goes on to give us a vivid description of what humility before God looks like in this text. And it's interesting the way he lays it out. Sometimes in the Bible, there's this linear argument where someone starts here and kind of takes you on a journey here. This passage is like a machine gun. Like he just rattles off a bunch of commands, one after another. But I think all of these commands are connected to the idea of humility before God. And the first has to do with submission. It has to do with submission. Humility before God means submitting to his will. He says in verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. The therefore shows that the idea of submitting ourselves to God is connected to the idea of humility. So we could word it this way. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we need to submit ourselves to him. We could say it this way. Submission is the fundamental expression of humility. Submission is the fundamental expression of humility. And I know, guys, especially in our culture, submission is a four-letter word. We do not like submission. We want to do things our way. I don't want to submit to anyone or anything. It's my life. I will do what I want. But that is an attitude that is rooted in pride. The prideful heart cries out, I will do things my way. I will not submit to anyone or to anything. But an attitude of humility says God's in control. God has ordered the world the way that he has. And a humble heart submits to God, submits to his word, submits to his design. So submission lets God be God. You can see where I'm getting at with this. Pride is me putting myself in God's place. Humility is me bowing down and acknowledging that God is on the throne. What are some ways that we can submit ourselves to God in our lives? We need to submit, first of all, our lifestyle to God, our actions. We need to submit our lives saying, God, I'm gonna live in obedience to your word. I'm not gonna look at your word and say, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I'll do things my way. No, humility means submitting our lifestyle to God. It means submitting our desires and our plans to God. It means that the purpose of my life is not my own happiness, not the fulfillment of my own desires or my own dreams, but submitting to God's will for my life, whatever that might be. It means we submit our thinking, we submit our beliefs to God and to this book, even when, especially when, it contradicts our own, especially when it contradicts the world around us. We submit our thinking and our beliefs to this book. Guys, submission is the starting point of humility. 
But next, we see that we cultivate humility before God as we live our lives in God's presence. As we live our lives in God's presence. So look at the second half of verse seven into the first half of verse eight with me. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Notice there's, there's different results here. When we resist the devil, he flees. When we draw near to God, he draws near. This has to do with which influence is speaking the most loudly in your life. And that has a big impact on whether or not you will be humble. He talks about how we need to resist the devil and he will flee. And it's interesting that in 1 Peter, Peter gives us a very similar command and a very similar context. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. I thought this was fascinating. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Does that verse sound familiar? Right? He's quoting from the same Old Testament verse, Proverbs 3.34. But keep listening. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So here's what I wanted you to notice. Peter quotes from the same verse as James. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and then gives the same application to it. Resist the devil. Why? Where is the connection there? Here's why. There is no sin that Satan would rather tempt you toward than pride. There is no sin that he would rather get deep down into your heart and get you wrapped up in than pride because pride is Satan's favorite sin. That was the sin that got him cast out of heaven originally. That was the sin that he tempted Eve toward in the garden. It's the sin that he wants to use to completely wreck your life and wreck your faith. And so what does God want us to do about it? He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does that mean? It means we resist the temptation and the influence of the evil one in our lives. And that can take different shapes and different situations. Sometimes it means we flee, right? Sometimes the Bible says flee from temptation. Sometimes we're putting ourselves in situations and in circumstances where we are tempted towards sin and we need to get out of that. Sometimes it means we stand firm. It means we resist the temptation of the evil one by standing firm in our faith. And the promise of this verse is when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Just as he fled from Jesus when he resisted temptation in the wilderness, so if we resist the temptation of the evil one, we have this promise from God's word that he will flee. But in contrast, while the evil one flees, God draws near. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The humble person seeks to consciously live their life in God's presence, drawing near to him daily. And it is in the very drawing near that we are made humble. You know why that is? Because it is impossible to be proud in the presence of God. Let me say that again. It is impossible to be proud in the presence of God. Look through the Bible. Every time anyone comes face to face with God, they are instantly humbled. Isaiah, Job, Peter, John. 
when they, have, when they come face to face with the God of the universe, for the first time they see God for who he is, and then for the first time they see themselves for who they are. It is when we understand both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves and the incredible grace that we've been shown in the gospel that we can truly become humble. So how can we today draw near to God, believing that he will draw near to us in return? Well, first of all, guys, we gotta be in this book. We have got to be in the word. We have got to be drawing near to God daily through the word. Let me ask you, are you reading this book? Are you studying this book? Are you memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture, letting it saturate your heart and your mind? That is the first step on the way to humility to realize that I need to hear from God. I need to draw near to him every day. We draw near to God through prayer. Prayer is an amazing expression of humility. Proud people don't have much need to pray. If I got my life figured out, why do I need to talk to God about it? But listen, we pray when we acknowledge that God is in control. We are not. There are things that he can do that I cannot, so I need to talk to him. We draw near to God through prayer. We draw near to God through worship. Worship both private on our own and worship corporate like we're doing this morning. When we gather together, we sing praises to God. We declare truths about God to God. That humbles us. It causes us to see God rightly so that we can see ourselves rightly. We humble ourselves as we submit to God, as we draw near to God. And the final way that James tells us that we have humility before God is through repentance through repentance. Second half of verse eight, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I take this as a reference both to the internal aspects of sin, purify your hearts, and the external expressions of sin. Cleanse your hands. We see throughout the Bible that in order to draw near to a holy God, we have to be pure of heart. Therefore, humility takes what God says about sin seriously, and it repents of the sin in our hearts and in the sin in our actions. James goes on to say, be wretched and mourn and weep. When I first read this, I thought, man, James must have been no fun at parties. Like, I mean, this guy is just a killjoy. He's saying, be wretched, mourn, weep. Then he even says a little bit later, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. It wasn't just that James was a killjoy, it's that James took sin seriously. And he's saying that the sin in our lives that dishonors the God of the universe ought to grieve us. It ought to grieve us. And let's be honest, guys. When was the last time we legitimately mourned our sin, where our hearts were broken over the fact that we have dishonored God? When was the last time we, like Peter, wept bitterly, like when he betrayed Jesus? When we see sin in our family, sin in our community, sin in our nation, do we respond like Ezra did in Ezra 10.1? It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. When was the last time we truly wept bitterly over our sin? 
And he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. He's not talking about the joy-filled laughter that ought to characterize our fellowship together in the church, but rather he's talking about an attitude that treats sin as casual, something to be winked at, something to be joked about. Instead of a nonchalant attitude like this, our sin ought to break our heart. The sin around us ought not to be joked about, but it ought to break our hearts. It ought to cause us to grieve. But, and here's where I have to be quick to say this, that grief is never for its own sake. Grief by itself is useless if it does not lead to repentance. The prophet Joel, Joel 2.13 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What he's saying is, I'm not glad that I made you cry. I'm glad that that grief led to repentance and now an even greater joy than was there before. Emotional, teary-eyed, snot-faced confessions of sin don't do any good if they don't lead to a changed life. That's what Paul is telling us. The purpose of mourning over our sin is to lead to change. And then on the other side of that change is greater joy, is real, genuine laughter and joy that he is talking about here. So let's summarize all this. We humble ourselves before God when we submit to God, when we draw near to God, and when we turn from our sin in repentance. And according to James, this is the pathway to exaltation. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is amazing to me. This is the, one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith. The only way up is down. The only way to be exalted is to quit trying to exalt yourself. The only way to glory is through self-denial. The only way to the resurrection is through the cross. And let me tell you, that is such a reversal of the values of this world, isn't it? This world is constantly preaching, you need to exalt yourself. You need to promote yourself. You need to show everyone how important you are. You need to build your brand. You need to prove yourself. And the Bible is saying, no, no, no. We humble ourselves before God and he exalts us. Jesus tells us, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And here's the thing though. What's on the other side of that self-denial? What's on the other side of that cross? Exaltation. Exaltation beyond your wildest imagination. What kind of exaltation are you talking about? Well, how does being a child of the living God sound? How does being a co-heir with Christ sound? One day reigning, the entire, reigning over the entire universe along with him. How does that sound? Is that enough? Exalted beyond our wildest imagination when we humble ourselves before him. So church, we humble ourselves before God. We have to humble ourselves before God. That is our greatest need is humility to say, you are God and I am not, and I will let you be in control of my life. However, in the next rest of James chapter four, he's going to show us two ways that humility with God transform our lives. And the first has to do with others. It's humility with others. 
And oftentimes, it's the way that we treat other people that reveals whether or not we are truly humble. So let's look together at James chapter four, verses 11 and 12 together. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When James says, do not speak evil against one another, I believe he's talking about the sin of slander. James is saying, don't slander. Now, as I was prepping for this sermon, read a great article by a guy named John Bloom on desiringgod.org. And so much of what I'm about to say, I'm getting directly from that article. And so this is the way Bloom defines slander. He says, slander occurs whenever someone says something untrue about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that person's reputation. You know, there's a couple of different forms of slander. It wears different masks. There's the blunt form that we just read, Straight up, it's when you lie about someone in order to make them look bad. But there's also more subtle forms of slander. He says, sometimes we have a very real concern about someone, but we share it with someone who cannot benefit from or help with the concern. We do this simply because we want our listeners to think worse of a particular person. So there's three things that I'm seeing there. When we're talking about slander, we need to consider the content, the audience, and the motive. The content, is what I'm saying true or is it false? If you're lying about someone, then by definition, you're slandering them. But even if you're telling the truth, that doesn't mean it's off the hook because you also gotta consider the audience. If I'm speaking negatively about someone else, does this person really need to know this information? Even if it's true, is this helpful? I mean, let me use myself as an illustration. As a pastor, one of the great privileges I have is to help people with their problems and to talk to people about the sins and struggles in their life. Now, even if I know these things and these things are true, how appropriate would it be if I got up here on a Sunday and said, all right, let's go around the room. I know this person struggles with this sin. I know this marriage is having issues. I know these parents are struggling with this. I mean, would that be appropriate? Of course not. That would be slanderous because the audience needs to be considered. Would this be helpful? Thank you. Uh, and now I like the response. So content, audience, and then finally, motive. What's the motive in speaking negatively about someone? Do I have a genuine concern and I am reaching out for help to come and minister to this person? Or do I just wanna make them look bad? And even worse, this is where pride comes in, do I wanna make myself look good by comparison? Those are the three things that we need to consider. And here's the deal, and Bloom uses this metaphor in this article. Slander is vandalism of character. Slander is to a person's reputation what vandalism is to property because Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. A person's character, their reputation is important. And so when we speak evil against others, we are vandalizing their character. We are doing to their character what Hannah does to the walls of our home whenever we let her play with crayons. <laughs> it's vandalism. So here's the deal. Slander is related to humility because if we were truly humble, we wouldn't do it. The 99% of the time, why do we talk bad about other people? Because we want to make them look bad and us look good. At the end of the day, that's what it is. 
We talk bad about other people because we want to make them look bad and us look good, and we do that in our pride. So let me give us an encouragement as a church family. First of all, let's commit ourselves as a church family to refrain from gossip, to refrain from slander, to refrain from speaking evil about one another. A lot of you guys know in the church world that will split a church quicker than anything else when we gossip, when we slander. And here's not just saying it, let's also refuse to listen to it. If someone comes to you and is speaking evil about another person, speaking negatively about another person, here's a great question to ask them. What would you like me to do with this information? Ask them, what would you like me to do with this information? If you'd like me to go with you to speak to this brother or sister in Christ to pursue reconciliation, awesome. Call them, set up an appointment, I'll be there. But if it's just, you know, I just wanted to talk or I just wanted to to say this about this person, get it off my chest, whatever, say, listen, I think you should go to them directly rather than involve me. If we're going to have a healthy church culture here, we have to refuse to slander. So we don't slander, but next, we don't judge. We don't judge. James says, the one who speaks against a brother, and now he adds, or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but the judge. When he says uh, we judge the law when we slander others, I think he's talking about this law of liberty that he mentioned earlier in the letter. In particular, where it says in the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the way James's logic is working here. He's saying, when you slander someone else, Or when you judge someone else, you are putting yourself in the position of God because you are now deciding that you do not need to obey God's law, namely the law that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James ends verse 12 by saying, who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, who do you think you are? Do you think you're perfect? What makes you think you are in a position to judge anyone else if you truly understood the sin in your own life? This kind of sinful, judgmental attitude comes when we self-righteously believe that we are in the position of God to speak evil against other people, to judge other people. And by the way, just to be crystal clear, guys, there is a world of difference in a sinful, judgmental attitude that condemns others in order to puff myself up and lovingly encouragingly confronting a brother or sister in Christ about sin in their life for the purpose of seeing them restored. A world of difference in those two things. We often conflate them, but they're not the same. What he is condemning here is a heart posture of pride that seeks to condemn instead of a heart of love that seeks to restore. And if we are going to be humble people, we must display humility in our relationships by refusing to slander and refusing to judge others. So we are to be humble before God, humble in our relationships with other people. And then finally, in the rest of James chapter four, he shows us what it means to be humble in life. Humility in life. Let's read James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him 
it is sin. So you can picture the scenario. It's probably traveling merchants and they're laying out their travel plans. Like, yeah, next year we're gonna go to this town and we're gonna make a profit and we're gonna do this and this and this. And so on the surface, I want you to see that they're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything wrong. The Bible praises careful and diligent planning. For example, Proverbs 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So as James is gonna make clear in verse 17, their sin was not one of commission, it was one of omission. Do you guys know what I mean by those words? There are sins that we commit, sins of commission, things we do that are wrong. Then there are sins of omission, things that we omit, something that I should have done that I failed to do. They failed to take God into account in their planning and thus displayed a prideful attitude about life. They thought they could go through their lives, they could plan out the next year of their life and never stop to consider what God's will might be. And James says, you're talking about next year, but you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's reminding them of the brevity of life. Your whole life is like the steam coming off of the cup of coffee. It's like smoke coming off of fire. It's like a mist that is there and then vanishes at dawn. He's saying, who do you think you are to plan out your life when your life is like that? In the same way, church, God is eternal, right? God has always existed and always will exist from beginning to end. God knows all things comprehensively. If we're lucky, we might get 80 or 90 years. And in that 80 or 90 years, we have an extremely limited perspective. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, the Lord of the Rings extended edition trilogy, all three movies put together. It's 11 hours and 55 minutes in case you needed some uh, plans for the rest of the day. Uh, but listen, let's say that's eternity and your life is like a two-second clip from one of the movies. What on earth makes us think we could watch that two-second clip and think we have the whole trilogy figured out? Yet that's what we do all the time. We act as if we can move from our limited vantage point, and we've been on this little rock called earth for a very short amount of time, and we think we have everything figured out, so much so that we can say what is going to happen with the rest of our lives. That's arrogant. That's prideful. It should humble us to know how big God is and how small we are. And so there are two things he teaches us about humility in life. And the first is that we've got to trust in God's will. Humility in life means that we trust in God's will. James says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's saying, add that to the beginning of your plans. Go ahead and make your plans but say, if the Lord wills. And that's not just some pious tagline they need to tack on. That is a heart posture of submission to God's will. It's an acknowledgement that God is God, that I am not. And so I need to plan and pray with this perspective. It means I live my life with open hands. I say, Lord, this is my plan. These are my desires. These are my dreams. I believe that they're in accordance with your will, but I trust you and I will go forward open-handedly. This is the only way that we can ever find peace in our lives. When we live in submission to God's will, this is what frees us. You know, and let me apply it this way. 
submission to God's will, trust in the sovereignty of God, this is the antidote to worry and anxiety in our lives. Like the antidote. Because listen, if God is sovereign, what do we have to worry about? God is in control. He knows what we need. And in Philippians 4.19, has promised to supply our every need through the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. Jesus teaches us that God takes care of the birds. God takes care of the flowers. How much more is he gonna take care of his children? We can be freed from being paralyzed by worry and fear in our lives when we trust in the will of our Father in heaven. And just like everything else we've talked about, this takes humility. Listen to 1 Peter chapter five yet again. I wanna return to this text. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, comma, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's an important comma because it is when we, casting our anxieties on him is a way that we humble ourselves before God. It takes humility to say, God, I'm worried about this situation, but I am trusting you to deal with it. I don't need to try to control my life and control my circumstances and figure everything out on my own. And that leads only to fear and anxiety. But instead, Lord, I will release this into your hands. I will trust you to deal with this, God. So we trust in God's will. But next, we don't boast. We don't boast. Verse 16 says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. When we boast about our lives, when we act as if we are in control of our future, we know what tomorrow will bring. We know what we're going to do with the rest of our life. That is boasting from our arrogance, James teaches us. Similarly, Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Listen, we don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. We don't know what's gonna happen an hour from now. We don't know what's gonna happen five minutes from now. You don't believe me? Let's jump in a time machine real quick and go back to a year 2019. You're already laughing because you know what I'm gonna say. How many of you saw COVID coming a mile away? You just knew next year there's gonna be this global pandemic and there's gonna be all this stuff happening and of course not. We don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. We don't know what's gonna happen this year or next year or whatever else. How much more all the events that happen every single day in our lives that we had no idea were coming, had no control over, would not have picked if we got to plan out our lives. Guys, when we assume that we have our lives figured out, that's arrogant. That is pride, but a heart of humility takes every single day as a gift of God's grace to be stewarded for his glory. So we should never boast about our lives thinking that we have everything figured out, but instead with humility, we receive every day as a gift and we use every moment as an opportunity to live for the glory of God. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back now and I wanna leave you guys with two final takeaways as we close this morning. I wanna remind you again that humility comes before exaltation. Humility comes before exaltation. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is a principle that is always true in God's economy. The only way up is down. Humility comes before exaltation. And there are so many examples of this in the Bible. I mean, God loves a good underdog story. 
But of course, there's one ultimate example, and, and you guys already know where I'm going with this, don't you? I hope so. Y'all have heard me preach enough. Who is the ultimate example of humility coming before exaltation in the Bible? Jesus. Of course it's Jesus, right? Philippians chapter two. We can't spend enough time in that text. Though Jesus was in the form of God, though he was the second person of the Trinity, though he was the eternal son of God, he did not count his status of having equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself by coming to this earth in human flesh. He humbled himself. He even washed the stinky feet of his disciples. He lived in poverty. He was a carpenter. And yet he died on the cross for sins that he did not commit. He took the penalty for our sins on that cross, humbling himself to the point of death. And then you know what Philippians 2.9 says? It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. On the basis of his humility in dying on the cross for our sins, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Humility comes before exaltation. And let me tell you, humility is at the heart of the gospel itself. Were it not for the humility of Jesus, we would be lost. But Jesus humbled himself for us. And so let me tell you, humility is at the heart of the gospel, but it's also at the heart of how we receive the gospel. Yes, humility is the first step in receiving the gospel. The first step in receiving the gospel is humbling myself to acknowledge that I'm a sinner, to acknowledge that I can't save myself, that I need a savior, to acknowledge that I am lost without Christ, that I am a sinner standing before the wrath of God and the only refuge is Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, let me implore with you this morning, humble yourself this morning before the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself, admit that you are a sinner, that you need a savior and that Jesus Christ is that savior. And I promise you on the authority of the word of God that God will exalt you beyond your wildest dreams if you will do that. You will be called a child of God. You will be a co-heir with Christ. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come now. And if there's anyone here who wants to do business with God and humble yourself before God this morning, why don't you come and talk to one of these folks this morning while this last song plays? Why don't you come and pray with them? Second takeaway this morning. This is my favorite one. You are not God, so act accordingly. So I hope the first part's not a newsflash, uh, but the second part's the real important one. You are not God. And I know you don't know that intellectually. I hope not. We've got some counselors here at Coastal uh, if you do think that intellectually. But practically speaking, we often live our lives as if we think we're God. We often think that we are in control of our own lives. We often act as if we are in control of our lives. We get to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We're not gonna submit to anyone else. We can do what we want. That's where the act accordingly comes in. When we know that we are not God, that should shape all of our actions. Because think about it, even in this text, he, it's not just a heart thing. The humility in our hearts translates to our actions, to our speech as we cease from slander, to our planning. 
as we cease from thinking that we can make plans on our lives apart from God. So let me give you just a few practical applications of how humility shapes our actions. Humble people are quick to forgive because they understand how much they've been forgiven. Humble people are eager to serve, not to be served, because they understand that it's not about them. Humble people serve and they don't need the credit because they're not doing it for the applause. They're doing it for the glory of God. Humble people are quick to listen and they're slow to speak because they're not only interested in themselves, they are interested in others. Humble people are honest. We don't need to lie or anything else because look, what you see is what you get. I'm a sinner just like you, but I receive the grace of God. Humble people neither boast nor self-loathe because they know that everything is not about them. So guys, last thing, humility is hard. This is hard. Like this is one of those things, it's like grabbing water. Once you think you've grasped humility, you, you really, you've just proven that you haven't, right? This is the hardest thing imaginable. It is completely unnatural for us as sinners. Humility does not come naturally. It comes supernaturally. It comes as we follow the example of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And church, it is my prayer that we would pursue humility together as a church family, that it would transform every aspect of our lives. It's God's way of trying to humble me. <laughs> so let's close with, let's close with prayer. I'll, I'll pray loudly.